welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 390, and today we have Josh and Dan on the show. As you'll hear, they're hunting partners, Josh being the more experienced hunter, and bringing Dan along to get him some more experience in the field, and we ultimately tell the story of their elk hunting season from this past fall, where Dan was able to kill his first bull. This is a great story, not only about the hunt itself, but about how Josh and Dan have kind of come together, how Josh has mentored Dan in a way, what they've learned from each other. And it's just a really cool kind of big picture process to see how hunters can help each other and ultimately share some great experiences in the field as they find success and deal with challenges. So whether you are the more experienced hunter like Josh or the newer hunter like Dan, there's certainly something for you to take away from this episode. Before we dive into that conversation, I just want to remind you guys that if you have anything for us with the podcast, you can always email podcast at exomountaingear.com, or if you have a specific question for the show, look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. I also want to remind you guys that you can always find all podcast episodes at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. The hundreds and hundreds of episodes are there. You can search by keyword, you can browse by topic, and much more. And finally, at exomountaingear.com forward slash K4, right now in February of 2023, you can find more information about the K4 packs that are coming soon and also enter to win a giveaway. We're giving away five K4 pack systems when we fully release them this spring, which should be in late March or very early April. So sign up for updates there and stay tuned. Right now, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Josh and Dan. Well, Josh and Dan, welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. I'm excited to chat. Uh, Josh, your return guest, and Dan, new to the show. So glad you're here, man. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, I'm going to skip some introduction for you, Josh, and uh, we'll have a link to your previous episode if guys want to go back and hear more context. But um, I will say I highly recommend that episode with you, Josh, and uh, we've gotten a ton of good feedback on it. I think in part because you're uh, you're such a detail oriented guy, Josh, and like there's a so many guys had a lot of takeaways because you just get into the nitty gritty in a very helpful way. So I I do want to encourage folks to listen to that um, and not fully neglect your background, although we are. But for you, Dan, like what's a brief high level introduction? We're obviously going to get into part of your story in this episode, but just some context for like who you are, where you're from, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was born and raised in Idaho and, you know, had a, some background in, you know, the outdoors. I was pretty active in the outdoors growing up, you know, my, my family backpacked and, uh, did a lot of, uh, fly fishing and, uh, skiing, skiing at a really young age. Um, also, uh, got into mountain biking quite a bit. And so, you know, a lot of my, time was spent out in the outdoors fly fishing you know i got into you know upland game a little bit growing up but not not extensively but never really got into big game hunting was there just like zero exposure to that 
You know, I thought about that. I, I, I don't think I had someone in my life growing up that was into it. So I never was invited to go on a hunting trip or uh, it just wasn't, I think, accessible to me, even though, you know, here in Idaho, it's, it's so prevalent. Um, it just wasn't in my general, you know, group of people. And so I, it's not that I avoided it at all. It always intrigued me, but it just, you know, it, it seemed like such a large endeavor that is like, well, if I don't have someone that's going to help me out or, or show me the way, then gosh, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So growing up in Idaho, very versed in the outdoors and at 48 is when you went on your first hunt, which is great. But what what changed? So living, you know, 40 plus years in the outdoors in Idaho at 48 or shortly before then, like what was it that pushed you over the edge or what connection did you make that got you into it? Well, it's kind of a funny story. So is this where we get into hot yoga, by the way? Oh, uh, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but what what sparked me to get into hunting was I was taking a trip with uh, my, my family and I were heading up to our place in the call. And uh, so it was my wife, my seven-year-old son, he was in the backseat and we were just driving up the, the highway and alongside the highway, there was a group of elk out there. And my son was like, what are those? And I said, well, those are elk. And he said, well, do they taste good? <laughs> you, know, <it's, laughs> you don't expect that from a seven-year-old. Do they taste good? Yeah. Um, but I was like, yeah, yeah, they, they, they taste really good. And so his next question was, well, can we go to the store and get some? I said, well, you, you can't, you know, it, that, that's a wild game. And uh, you just can't go to the store and, and buy that. And I said, you know, you're going to have to get a hunting license. Or we're going to have to harvest it ourselves. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a, something that we would have to learn how to do. So there's a long pause in the back seat, And then the next thing was, dad, uh, can we get our hunting licenses and go harvest an elk? And my wife who was sitting next to me was like, she just looked at me with this look of, Oh no, here it goes. <laughs> Cause uh, and Josh can attest to this. When I, when I decide to get into something, I kind of go all the way in, um, not just a little bit. And so that really started this journey of, okay, how do I do this? You know, how, how in the next three, four years till, you know, my son is old enough to do this. How am I going to learn how to do this and take him out on a hunting trip and get an help? I have no idea what I'm doing. And so, yeah, you do the typical thing. You go out and you, you start looking at uh, uh, videos online, you know, YouTube, you start listening to podcasts, you start reading magazines, you start reading articles, you start, all of that. And I was reading an article from Western Hunting Magazine, Western Hunter Magazine, and uh, it was about how to start hunting bow hunt, how to start bow hunting, and it was uh, written by a guy named Darren Cooper. And you know, it's funny because I, I knew a guy. His name was Darren Cooper in college, and we were in the same fraternity. And I read the whole article, great article. They get to the bottom; it's got a picture, and it's the Darren Cooper I know. The Darren and, Cooper the Darren Cooper. And so I, I find, I, you know, I go through my, the people I know, I'm like, okay, I got to get a hold of Darren Cooper. And I, I find, you know, I get his number and I call him 
we kind of get reacquainted. And I, you know, I told him the story of my son and how, you know, I, I, I really want to get into this and, and, you know, would you be able to help me? Let's, you know, let's go grab a beer. And so we went and grabbed a beer and, um, uh, he, you know, he gave me all the insight he could. It was so over my head, the terminology that, you know, everything was just so far over my head. Um, but, you know, he was willing to help me out, you know, especially in the archery, because if anyone knows, you know, Darren Cooper, he's, he's, you know, he has an engineering background and then he went to Hoyt and worked at Hoyt for years and has patents with Hoyt's on, on a lot of their, uh, cam systems. If this were your first day of kindergarten, it was like you got thrown into a PhD course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, here's a guy who's a, you know, world champion U.S. field archery. He's on the U.S. team, um, two-time national uh, 3D champ- team champion. Uh, he's also, uh, what was it, the 2018, uh, he came within a point of winning the, the uh, PRS national championship. So, the, you know, Darren is checked out. He's 30 plus years of hunting, you know, Western big game. Um, but at the end of that meeting, he says, you know, I have this idea that I've been wanting to do for a long time. He goes, I want to start, I want to start a company where we uh, rent out high end hunting gear to, to people. And that's kind of where my background is. I'm, I'm technology. And so we talked about that for quite a while. And next thing you know, we're starting a company that is in the hunting industry, uh, renting out high-end uh, hunting gear called rentoutdoorgear.com. And, you know, I come home and tell my wife and she's like, so you started a hunting company. Uh, you'd never hunt it. <laughs> now we see so, why your wife was like worried when she knew that yeah yeah so hence i kind of jump in full force um it's a good way to learn how to swim when you find yourself in the pool yeah, yeah exactly so um that was my introduction with with darren and darren you know he, he really got me dialed in with bow hunting and i practiced and practiced and practiced and i really got to know you know, as much as I could about, about the, the bow and the and hunting and, or, or, and shooting. Um, and then I was at a yoga class <laughs> and there's this guy in there, this tall, lanky guy, and he had a first light jacket on. I'm like, so, hey, you a hunter? And he's like, yeah, yeah. So we start talking and we find out that he lives, you know, stones throw away from me here, kind of in our same neighborhood. And that's Josh. And so, yeah, like Josh said, there's probably not too many people, too many hunters that met at a yoga class. Um, yeah, hot yoga, is, it's a fast track to finding a good hunting partner, as it turns out. <laughs> I mean, we get those questions from podcast listeners like, hey, how do I find a hunting partner? And yeah, thus far, my list of advice has not included hot yoga, but I'll, I'll reconsider. It, it may be low on the list, but it worked for us. Yeah, I know we're joking, but... Actually, there may be a little insight there in that Dan is not a shy person. So, you know, for those people who might be looking for a hunting partner, you know, you see people wearing hunting gear out and about, just start chatting with them. Like Dan caught me at a perfect time. I had a couple of good hunting partners. We typically went to the same spots, but their life situations were changing a little bit. One of them was moving away. Um, another one was just 
had a job change where I wasn't able to hunt as much. So I was at a time where I was open to possibly having a new hunting partner, something I take pretty seriously. But um, so I was like, oh, well, you know, let's start the conversation with this guy and um, we may get to it. But I, you know, Dan and I spent a little time in the field and I may or may not have put him through some kind of subtle challenges to, huh. make, to make sure he would, uh, you know, not to make sure he's going to be the kind of hunting partner you want during a long hunt. Somebody's not going to flake out and get nervous and not be up for the challenge. But uh, yeah, it's one thing Dan does really good is he just asks questions. And he's not afraid to be like, Oh, let's just see where this goes with whoever he meets. That's a great point. If, if anybody knows Josh, um, he loves to hike and he puts in a lot of miles. And I mean, he's, he is a mountain goat and I, you know, I, I consider myself in shape and I train a lot, but wow. Uh, trying to keep up with Josh was, uh, is a lot. So I, uh, I was in the back just sweating and, you know, trying to keep up with Josh, but hopefully I did. Okay. Let's, let's get back to that, Josh. I don't want to forget to come back to it. When you said, you know, some trials like, and the reason I'm getting at this is yes for your story, but also I, there is such an importance to you can meet a guy, you can talk to him and all that. But like when somebody's true colors kind of come out under some adversity and sometimes that's ability and mindset, but it's really just this whole comprehensive package of like, Hey, when, when we're in the back country and things get tough, like how are you going to react and respond? And that's not to say that someone's good or bad. It's just like, are we going to be on the same page when things get rough type thing? So what is an example of, I, I guess for you, Josh, first, like, how did you do that intentionally? Uh, and then maybe for you, Dan, what was that, the other side of that experience like maybe for, if any stories come to mind? Yeah. So this is Josh, I'll, and there's two things I, that jumped to mind that I intentionally did. Um, I think it was the first year we decided to hunt together. There was a time where I wasn't going to be able to go, but Dan had a free time and a schedule. So obviously when you meet somebody new, you're not going to just go like, Oh, here's the coordinates to my favorite elk hunting spot in the world. Just go there. Um, it's a lot of trust, but I have, I've been to a couple other spots where I was like, this seems pretty good. I haven't had awesome success, but it is freaking hard to get in there. Let me give Dan those coordinates, send him in there and see if he's willing to put in the effort to get there. Um, you know, cause that's a really good test. Like here's a guy going solo. Um, and, you know, we'll see if he was like, no, that was too much for me. Um, so I gave Dan some coordinates to a spot that um, I affectionately call Ford's Canyon. And he went in there, got into smell, chased him off the wrong side of a basin, um, down into complete hellhole, got stuck down there in dark. And I'll, we don't need to go too much into that. But when he came out and told me the story, I was like, okay, this guy is not, not going to be deterred by really difficult terrain. Um, and he's willing to put in the hard miles to get to a spot. So that was one example. And then uh, we also had a scouting trip that we were going in. Dan was trying some new boots and we'd already spent a day and then we we're on our second day. And he had mentioned his heels were feeling pretty bad. And we got to the top end of a big basin and this head wall was just steep as hell. And there were two different ways up the extremely steep way and the slightly less steep way that had an elk trail. 
And when we're sitting there having a snack before making the final sounds, like, which way do you want to go? The, the fastest way to get to the glassing knob is straight up this thing. And I knew Dan was in pain, but he was like, just go straight up. And I, I could tell he was in, in pain. Um, and it was hot. And it was just like, it was a cardio workout. And his heels were burning. He got up top and, and he didn't complain at all. And, you know, you can tell when somebody's hurting. Um, so I was like, all right, this cements it. Like he's up for whatever. It doesn't, you know, we're not going to get in a situation where he's, he's going to bail out. Um, yeah, there, there was a third one too. On uh, first year we hunted together where it was just a real slow day. It actually was in the same canyon you ended up shooting your bowling this year. Mm. Um, spoiler alert to folks. But it was just sh- shitty. And we get to the top and I was like, I've or not to the top, but nearly the top. And I'm like, I've never gone up and over this. And I think it would just, it's got to be cool up there. And it was going to be a dry, dusty, rocky side hill, just slog. And I was like, hey, Dan, let's go for this. And, you know, he, I knew he was green and he's probably like, why are we going up on top of this above tree line, middle of the day? And I was just curious. And, but part of me, you definitely did it because I was like, let's see, let's see if he'll hang through this. And he did. Um, and so I was like, I got enough data points. Like I'll take this guy anywhere. We're going to be a great team. On the other side of that, Dan, for any of those stories, did you ever feel like Josh was just crazy or like, Hey, I guess this is what backcountry hunting or elk hunting's like. Like what's your experience on the other side of what he just mentioned you know i i'm not one of those people that's going to turn down a uh you know a, a something hard um and i i want to be accepted right i want i want i i i didn't have anybody else and so if it's it's going to suck i'm going to embrace that suck and uh you know i yeah my feet were killing me i still can't find boots that are gonna that just work great for me but um, you know, that's a whole other thing is to just watch, you know, Josh and how he packs his gear, you know, and I was not going to stop and say, no, nope, I'm not going to do that. It just, it, it's just not in me to do that. Josh, something that I know, you know, you and I have talked about it a little bit, not intentionally, um, but just knowing you, you are beyond helpful and eager to to help hunters um, and especially new hunters. But for you, I I see this dynamic of it's yes, it's a new hunting partner for you, but it's also just an opportunity to get someone else involved in hunting and kind of bring them into that world. What I need to know what my question is other than like, what have you learned about that? What have you learned about someone like Dan, who's completely new to hunting, not necessarily new to the outdoors. And just like, what have you found to be helpful to bring those guys along and kind of get them involved? And in this case, like you were very hands-on kind of leading them to some success, but just advice for guys listening to this, who maybe they're on the receiving end of this dude who comes up to them is like, Hey, do you hunt? Cause I'm, I'd love to, but I don't know. And I know that's a, big broad question but just takeaways from your experience yeah so i guess i'll start by backing up so i used to work for backcountry hunters and anglers um, and volunteer for them previous working for them and one of the things they do is a learn to hunt program here in idaho that the idaho chapter put on and i've been teaching that for about five or six years or a portion of that i should say and what that did is it really opened my eyes just being in front of 15 to 25 brand new hunters that are all adults 
they had so many questions that when they asked them, I realized these are things I've picked up over a lifetime of hunting that felt like it was just like rote knowledge now that I, I forgot that I had learned that along the way. So it really opened my eyes to like, wow, people just getting into hunting have a tremendous amount of information to, to learn. Um, so it, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but it just like an appreciation for how long of a process that really is. Um, so it really opened my eyes to that and just made me like, okay, there's, there's a need to be able for people to like, there's a demand, I should say, for people to learn from others that have done this. So I was like, I'm, I'll just be open to this. And it's just a piece of my year now. I want to do that, you know, for as many people as I can throughout the year. Um, secondly, with some of those questions and with like meeting people like Dan or anybody who has a little bit less experience, you realize you actually learn some things or in some cases relearn some important lessons as you're trying to help teach others. Like we all forget things, right? Like I was excellent in algebra in when I ever, whatever that is, eighth grade, ninth grade, I can't do any algebra right now. Right. Because it just hasn't been a part of my life. But so by being around some folks that are less experienced, it's helped me like keep sharp on some of those, like some of the more fundamental things or even some of the fine details. Um, so that's the second piece of it. And then third, like selfishly, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I was about to lose kind of two really good hunting partners. And especially with elk hunting, it is a minimum for me. I know there's some badasses to do it solo, but for me, it's a minimum two or three person um, type of an event. And so I was like, selfishly, I want to have a great hunting partner that I can rely on. So um, that's kind of, I think you know, a handful of reasons why I was just like, all right, I'm committed to this and helping others. Yeah. Cool. Dan, you were, um, I know that you know this, but incredibly fortunate to connect with guys like Josh and Darren. I know you've connected with like Russ Meyer again, just dudes who have decades of experience and expertise. And so I'm sure you're drinking from a fire hose and you have access to truly some of the best dudes I know, but all of that said, what were some of the struggles or like what was hard to learn or maybe overwhelming just about not necessarily being outside, you have all this background and experience of being in the outdoors, but taking it to this next level and hunting, like what, what intimidated you about it? I think the first part of intimidation was who you're with, who I was with. Um, you know, I had, I was fortunate to go on a Montana mule deer trip with uh, Darren Cooper, uh, Russ Meyer, um, Zach Kurtzel, Kurtzel from Hoyt, um, you know, and so, you know, that's a, that's an all-star team that I, here I am, this newbie going traveling to Montana for this mule deer, deer trip with these three guys. I was intimidated. And, but the way that they brought me along and taught me and, and showed me things um, it, it, for me, it required a lot of humility because in, in, in the things that I've done in my past, my athletic endeavors, if, if you put in the time, you will be successful. You, you'll, you'll see your success grow. And in archery, hunting, especially for me in elk, that's not the case. You know, I've gone four years and I have not, you know, down my, my archery elk. And so the humility uh, that I think a person has to have and uh, to just ask the dumb question, even if you think that person's going to roll their eyes and be like, are you kidding me? Really? You don't know that? 
I think that's, that was a, a big part for me is, is asking the questions, listening, studying it, practicing, um, and just spending the time that you can, as much time as you can out in the mountains, trying to get close to animals, trying to see how they react, learning to call. And that, that's really where I am right now is I really want to become a great caller. And that's tough because they speak a language that I don't know. And so it's, it's, it's this very steep learning curve that's just intimidating for, for a new hunter. Um, but if you can, if you can surround yourself with, with, um, experienced people as, as most experiences as you can, it, that really helps that learning curve. Yeah. This is Josh. I'm going to chime in with a couple other things that I think I've witnessed Dan, um, not struggle with, but like ha- have to really learn. Um, and this is something that all new hunters would face is the regulations. Yeah. If, if you don't grow up around it. Um, or if you even change states like I did, I, I moved from Montana to Idaho 10 years ago, and it's like kind of learning a new foreign language. Um, so having somebody that you can call with those questions, be like, am I reading this right? What does this mean? What, you know, what is a controlled hunt? If I get this tag, can I get that tag? Um, that sort of thing was a big one. Um, is there any more you want to add on that piece? No, it's, it's extremely um, not intuitive. And I'm sure every state is different, but, you know, I, I, for a newbie coming in and opening up the Idaho regulations, it's, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's confusing to say the least. Yeah, for sure. And then in the field, the other one I'll point out, um, and I, I think Dan's, I'm sure not alone in this because he comes from an athletic background. He's, you know, he's a go-getter is having the patience to, especially in like archery elk when you're out there for really long days, some of those days are just inevitably slow mm. and it's something I've learned along the way too, but I could see Dan just being like, what? Let, let's go, let's go, let's move. Let's do something. Let's, let's try to pu- push it. There's gotta be like a button we can push to try to improve our situation. And maybe there is, but you know, there's times where I was, I felt, I was like, ah, oh, man, I think our best bet is literally to sit here for the next four hours till the wind switch or until we have a better glassing advantage or just, Hey, you know, we have a good glassing advantage and let's just, you know, hang out here. And I could just see Dan like almost like grinding his teeth, like, come on, I, I want to, I want to work hard to make this better. And I'm like, man, sometimes you just can't. Yeah. It, it was very hard for me to learn that, you know, these animals have been there for thousands and thousands of years surviving with predators all around them, trying to kill them constantly. And, you know, here I am a six foot two, six foot three, 200 pound clodhopper coming in thinking that I'm just going to come up and sneak up on these animals and get close enough to, you know, shoot them with my, my bow. Uh, that was a eye opener for me. You know, their senses are just so on point and mine are not. And so to learn that patience, to learn the wind, to learn, you know, that is such a huge, steep learning curve as well. Did you sometimes feel, Dan, like in those moments when you're glassing or you have these longer sections, multiple hours where you're stationary, not moving, that you weren't hunting? Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that. It's like, yeah, I can see him. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, how about we sit here and watch where they go and <laughs> bed down or, or, you know, 
watch uh, their movements. It, 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 yeah, I, you're correct. It's, um, it's, it's, I want to go. I want to move. I want to do it. And, and you can't do that. You know, Mark, I don't know if you have any tricks to help you with that. Cause I, I feel I'm way better at it than I used to be. I used to just hike through the middle of the day a lot. I didn't in, inevitably blow out a bunch of elk. Um, so one thing that helped me is I, I bring a Kindle with me on almost every single trip. Now the real, the lightest one they have, because it just helps me sit on my ass when it's time to sit on my ass and I'll read for a couple hours, uh, makes the time go by way, way easier. Do you have any similar tricks? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, like tricks. I do the same. Like I'll, I'll just use the Kindle app straight on my phone or sometimes like let myself just take that nap or be half asleep. Right. And I would just say, as long as you're out in the elk woods, you have a chance of encountering elk. And sometimes that's like hearing that midday bedded bugle. Sometimes that's literally the stick breaks and something snuck in on you. Um, sometimes it is glassing, but then be willing to take those breaks and um, just get fresh eyes. So as long as you're out there in a way, even if you're not active, you're still hunting, right? Like something can still happen if you're out there. And so I would just say for guys who may, you know, do the typical like, oh, I'm going to hunt the morning, hunt the evening, but not, you know, waste that midday. There's no point in being out there. It's like, no, just be out there. Even if you want to chill and not go hard and cover ground, just being out where elk can be, um, putting yourself in that spot, you're still hunting, even if you don't feel like you're doing anything. Yeah. That, that's that's an interesting way to put it. You're still hunting because I do feel that uh, you know you got your morning hunt, your evening hunt, and everything else in the middle is. You now we're just kind of sitting around until those times, which uh, it's really not. Yeah, and it you know it. I was getting ready to say it depends on the season, the time of year, and all that because you know there's we've killed archery bulls at one p.m. and two p.m. But even later season stuff like right now we're recording this in November, you get those bulls who are they're tougher to find and they can be isolated in little pockets and keep a really small home range. So they're not necessarily up covering a bunch of ground. They're obviously not super vocal, but they can actually be up quite a bit during the day and feeding and and trying to put on that weight before winter. They're just doing it in a much smaller spot. Um, So really, I mean, throughout most of the year, you can have success in midday when a lot of people think that you might not. I want to talk about this year's hunt, Dan, but like, I don't want to skip over for you, this newer hunter starting at 48. What was it like when you had that first kill? What was it like to harvest your first elk? Well, the first animal that I, I harvested was uh, an antelope out of a ground blind with my bow. Um, and I was solo and even better. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I was nerve wracking. Um, not, not the process of the shooting the antelope. It was once it's down, I, I literally downloaded an app on my phone that showed me how to break down an animal. I didn't know how to do it. And so that's what I was most, you know, worried about in the process. And, and, you know, once you get your hands in the animal and you start breaking it down, it's pretty intuitive. Um, but so that was my first animal. Uh, and then uh, I second one was a, a, a mule deer. 
Um, but my first elk was with, with a rifle. It was a cow elk with a rifle. Um, and it's kind of, it's a, it's a funny story. Um, it was, it was one of those, uh, hunts. It was the archery tag where if you don't, if you're not successful, you have to, uh, hunt, uh, within a mile of irrigation on private land. And I found this area where, um, I, it was perfect setup and there were these elk in this, this, uh, this field and the, by their pivots and they were, they would come out this one area. And I, so I, I shot my cow and, uh, all of a sudden, here comes a landowner on his four-wheeler just screaming towards me. And I'm looking on my onyx going, I am, I am definitely where I'm supposed to be. I am not beating on his land. And he comes up to me and he's like, did you get it? I said, yeah. He's like, congratulations. Where'd you park? I'll take you up to your truck and get your truck. I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh that's He's like, awesome. let me go get the tractor. We'll 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 we'll, uh, we'll drag the, the the elk into my barn and we'll we'll dress it there. <laughs> so wow. <laughs> how, how far from the public private boundary did this cow elk die? Uh, Ten yards. <laughs> wow. <laughs> as soon as it crossed the line on Onyx, I shot it. But uh, yeah, so that was uh, to be honest, my really the first time I've ever. Um, packed out a bowl was Josh's bowl this year. Other than that, it's been pretty much just, it's been so convenient. And, uh, yeah. Cool. Well, let's pick up on this year. I mean, I, uh, it sounds Josh, cause your bowl was first, right? Like what, uh, Dan just mentioned about your bowl. Yeah. So if we could back up a step one, you know, since we're talking about re-engineering success, obviously like a lot of hunters, as soon as the season ends, you start talking about your plans for the next year. And so Dan and I talked about, you know, what our options might be coming into this year. We talked about some controlled hunts and found out there's a controlled hunt that starts immediately after archery season in the same area that we typically archery hunt. And even though the area is not known for like amazing trophy potential, um, you know, you can find, controlled hunts with higher success rates or higher percentage of six point bowls, that sort of thing. It was like, I think because we have such institutional knowledge of the spot of these areas, like we are consistently finding elk in our tree season. We just, it's a challenge to get them killed. Um, like, I think it'd be really smart to put in for controlled hunts in that exact spot. So that was like a, a very deliberate decision. Um, and we all put in, I did not draw the control hunt, but Dan and his son did. Um, so going into it, Dan knew he had this rifle tag that starts still during, um, potential rutting time. And then as luck would have it, the way the Idaho system shook out this year, Dan was able to pick up a second elk tag to have the archery tag in there as well. So we had, we archery hunted the same area the whole time and going into, uh, well, I guess, so archery season started very slowly this year. Oof. Um, during the summer, Dan, I got super excited. We did a summer scouting trip in there and I've been in this area for years and this looked as promising as I've ever seen. The first night we were in there, well, we hiked up high and between that night and the morning where we glassed from the same spot, we put our eyes on 20 different bowls in the, like our favorite basin to go into. And there was a couple of nice ones. And then the next days we hiked to a completely different area, looked in, found another drainage that had you know, a bunch of cows and nine other bowls. And we're just like, it's looking great for the season. I think that was mid July. Yeah. 
you know, fast forward to September, we get in there and there were a few bulls still in there, but it was like a ghost town yeah. in comparison. And in comparison to the previous years, the first couple of weeks of archery season were really, really slow and really quiet, hardly any bugles. Um, as, as few close encounters as I can remember having over the last several years. And we were like, we were grinding. We were going pretty much every weekend, yeah. making long weekends of them. But it was started really slow. Um, and it wasn't until September, I think we went in September 27th, 28th, right. something like that. Um, we just got like the, the bowl started heating up. Um, and yeah, on the 29th, Dan and I split up that morning. We backpacked in the night or two nights before. And um, yeah, I just... He went one way after a bull that we heard bugling. I snuck into this area and just got lucky. A bull bugled right above me. I never even bugled back at him. I just snuck in. I had perfect wind. And uh, I would, at that point, I would have happily shot any elk, but I was able to sneak in. Um, it rained the day before. And it was quiet and shot this elk at 30 yards um, and made a really poor hit. Actually, I had a total mental error on my shot. Um, the bull ran out of sight and I tracked it for about – well, I gave it an hour and then tracked for a couple hours and I lost blood after a couple hundred yards and I was totally dejected. Went back and met Dan at camp and I got to give him a ton of credit for this. Um, Dan's a really upbeat guy 99% of the time, <laughs> which will come into the story in a little bit, but uh, I was, I was kicking myself. I was pissed um, that I made this mental error and I was like, Oh, I think I may have just lost the ball. He's like, we're going to find this thing. And so we packed up our camp because we were heading out. To a different area anyways went back and dan i had him start following the blood like you know i didn't show him what i had found and so it was like see if he would have a fresh perspective on it but he ended up at the same conclusion as me like man i don't know where it went from here from this spot and i had spent close to an hour doing circles around that last blood spot and i was like oh man if it went beyond this across this little ravine then it just then it's gonna be like a needle in a haystack and I'm standing there and for whatever reason, having Dan there, he was in one spot and I was, I went across and just looked at a different angle and um, granted the sun had moved by then, but I look over and my bowl is laying 20 yards from Dan piled up in the thickest dog hair, just jumble of pines that you can imagine. But, um, I'd spent it close to an hour within 75 yards of the thing in the morning. Wow. Um, but Dan's positive attitude, like really, really helped us find the bowl. It's five hours from the time I shot it until we found it. And it only got 250 yards. Um, it just died in a really awful spot. So, yeah, we packed that half that bowl out that evening um, and then returned in the morning. And it was a beautiful day oh, when yeah. I got on the 29th. We get back in there the next morning and it's snowing on us. It snowed overnight. It's just wet. It's sloppy. It's freaking cold. Um, and now we just, you know, packed a bowl. It wasn't terribly far in. Uh, I think just under three miles or something like that. And uh, yeah, but 100. Yeah. So, this is one thing about also the area we picked, like in the re engineering success. This one area, it's not crazy deep, but it is really steep and there are like no trails. Um, it's tough going, a lot of blowdown. Dan, unbeknownst to me, as we were packing my bowl out, Dan was counting. We had 152 blowdowns that we went either over or around <laughs> on the way out. And that's not a figure of speech, that's like counted. No, I counted every single one. <laughs> so we get back to the truck on what ended up being the last day of archery season you know my bowl is now in the cooler and it's just wet we're soaked and it's like well dan still has an archery tag but it literally has 
you know, a few hours left and then his rifle tag starts the next day. Um, and so we made the a decision seemed a little weird, which was to leave the elk woods for a brief time. So, um, Dan, Dan knew from previous years and from talking to another hunter that there was a town we could drive into that had, um, some showers like you could pay for and you could dry off. And, um, so we, we zipped into town, took a shower, dried some of our gear and grabbed a meal. Um, and then just kind of zip back and car camp that night, went to bed really early and decided to start rifle hunting on dance tag super early the next morning. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, a direct transition of, Oh, archery season's over, but now we can just get right after it in the same exact spot the next day with a rifle. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It was actually kind of a tough decision to figure out like where to go because the elk had been kind of spread out by this point. And, um, you know, we have, we've been hunting this area for many years. So we have like four or five spots that are pretty, you know, consistently they're the, they're the best. Um, but it's like, okay, now you got a rifle. So you feel more deadly. And so I'm like, you know, where do we go? And obviously I wanted Dan to make the final decision because I didn't have a tag. It was his tag. And, uh, yeah, so we decided to hike into a spot we affectionately called Dead Calf Canyon because we found a dead calf in it a couple of years before. Um, but I'll let Dan take over there from there. Fast forward hiking in that that morning of opening day of rifle. Yeah, can we? I want to back up real quick. I want to before we come to your story, Dan. Just since you have multiple years of experience in this area, what do you think happened between how promising it looked scouting in July to how slow the first part of September was? Like, do you think that is that a common pattern? Was that something unique about this year? Like, as you look back at it now, that's one thing I've really come to appreciate is trying to spend time in an area multiple years and then just seeing the differences each year and trying to piece together this picture and this puzzle. Um, what are your thoughts on that for this spot in this year? Yeah. So two things, it is somewhat common. So I go in there and scout every summer and invariably I see a, a lot of elk. And for whatever reason, this area holds a lot of bulls and not very many cows, especially in the summer. Um, and then come September, there's always fewer bulls, but in past years, it wasn't such a drastic drop off. Like I said, this summer we saw a ton of bulls and then very few bulls in September. It's usually a decrease, but not this much. Um, so what I think in part of what happens is these bulls know in September is coming, the ruts coming, they're breaking up from their larger bachelor groups. And I think they're just literally going to find a sweet little spot to just rest up for a little while. They're just not being quite as active until they're ready to rut. Almost like you talk about in late season bulls, like this time of year in November, I think they just find their little pockets in this area. We hunt like everything is good elk habitat. It's a huge, vast area where, I mean, yeah, there's some hot spots, but you can find an elk anywhere. I mean, you're just rarely walking more than five minutes without seeing elk sign on the ground. So I think these bulls are just finding their little hideouts um, and hanging out in smaller groups. That said, one other big piece this year, and it happened a couple of years ago as well, is this area does have some wolves um, and just, out of some bad luck, you know, those wolves cover a huge amount of country, but if they're in those spots, my experience has been the elk get really quiet, super secretive, don't move much until they're pretty confident the wolves are gone. Um, and a couple years ago, we heard them in there um, howling like crazy and yeah, the elk hunting was terrible for a few weeks. 
this year, we didn't, Dan and I didn't hear him, but on the hike out of the first weekend we ran, when we were close to the truck, we bumped into another hunter, a guy we actually knew, and he'd been in there for like the first five days of the season. He's like, you guys hearing the wolves? No, you know, we, we didn't tell him where we were, but we had, we'd been further back and just apparently out of, uh, out of range to hear these wolves. He's like, yeah, we've been hearing them all the time. The, the elk we're seeing are you know, moving. There's one group of cows way out in this big wide open, all huddled up like on top of a knob, like where they have a huge 360 degree view. So pretty confident wolves had just been in the area, which certainly contributes to slowing down the elk hunting for a while. Um, so those are my only two theories about why it slows down I, I, what about the heat yeah it was hot as hell this year too but i don't know no rain for months yeah so. but yeah and i that can i think certainly affect a lot of areas i don't think it affects our area tons. there's a pile of water we have a like there's just springs all over where we're at um and i've killed elk in there in past years but you know two of them in august like the last day or two of august um when it's been hot but it was very hot this year but I don't know, you know, so just the typical things, wolves yeah. and heat. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense for sure. Cool. All right, Dan, coming back to you, you, uh, were you guys pretty beat up from the pack out? I know you said it was like three miles deadfall and all that, but you did get to go back and shower. How fresh were you feeling going into, oh, we need to get in here and kill another bull? I, I, no, I was really excited to get back out. I think going into town and, you know, taking a shower, getting a good meal, sleeping in the back of the truck helped a lot um yeah I, I was i was pretty fresh and i know josh is always fresh um and he just came off of you know getting a six point so he was he was nice and happy yeah yeah i was happy mark unsolicited i'll give you guys some props with xo that was the first bowl i pack out with my xo pack i think i packed some other fairly heavy load but i have never felt as good after a heavy pack out, certainly, you know, two trips with the bull out using other packs. So, uh, props to you guys. That was, that was the best my body had felt after a heavy pack out. And, I, and it felt very comfortable in, in the pack the whole time. Yeah. I would have to stay the same with mine. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool to hear. Let's pick off where Josh was, Dan. One thing that stood out to me and what he said leading up to your story was where do we go? Right. Like we've been in this country, there's these multiple options. How did you, how were you thinking of uh, narrowing down how you wanted to start this hunt? Um, so yeah, I, you know, pretty much came in and put my bow in my truck and picked up my rifle. <clears throat> and the next question is, where do we go? And we've, like Josh said, we had four or five areas that uh, we knew held elk. You know, we just he he just arrowed his elk in this one canyon. So we're like, well, we'll leave that alone. So my next, uh, my next thought was, well, let's go to this, what Josh called dead calf Canyon. Um, because it's just a place we've, we, we see, we have seen a lot of elk and we know the way they move. We know when they come out, we know the meadows they cross. Um, and so I thought that was my highest, you know, probability of success, especially with a rifle, cause I can reach out so much further. Um, so we decided to again sleep in the truck but get up really early in the morning um and go in by light so that uh, i can get to this uh one vantage point to where uh i can set up and i have a view of like two 
two little uh, ravines or meadows that they the elk usually uh, in the mornings wake up and start coming out into and start feeding. And uh, and Josh was going to set up uh, like a, a ravine over uh, to where I could see him with my binoculars and we had some, some radios and so he could speak to me, but his vantage point was completely different than mine. He could see something, you know, all the other ravines and that I could not see. So yeah. he could tell me what's happening on his end. Yeah. If I could interject for a second, just to help listeners, this canyon is kind of unique in that if you follow the stream up, it wise into you know, two different streams and Dan went to the right, but not very far up the right fork. And I went to the left, but it's typically a canyon when this, the streams fork, they still kind of run fairly close to parallel and in the same direction as the first stream, you know, the mainstream. But in this case, once these two streams fork off, they really turn almost 90 degrees, almost away from each other. Um, so it was great. I was able to, and the, the stream on the left that I went up is really steep compared to one Amazon. So I was get, be able to get this high vantage point and I was, I think it was like 650 yards to you. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I could just barely see where Dan was sitting up or sitting with this, you know, his rifle on the tripod or kind of in a shooter's position. Meanwhile, I had a big vantage point of uh, up the canyon he was in. And then I could see this whole second canyon that I knew he could not see. Um, so I just wanted to kind of lay that out a little bit more. Um, one important note here is we hiked in that morning. I mentioned it rained and snowed the day before. Well, overnight it got cold and all that moisture was still on the ground. So just keep that in the back of mind with Dan picks yeah. up the story. Yeah. So I'm, I, I set up and I'm, you know, I have my little thermo rest, you know, seat pad, so I'm not sitting on the snow, but, uh, the time goes by and I just, I'm just shivering uncontrollably shivering and i i don't I, I i have all my clothes on and uh the radios i you know and, and so eventually um way up on on the on the mountain there i can start seeing some some cows come across and uh and three no, two bulls nice bulls but they're 800 850 yards off and so i I, I'm trying to uh, talk to Josh on the radio, but he's not hearing me. I just get static on my radio. And on his end, I, I can hear him intermittently with these radios. And so I don't know what he's really saying, and he can't hear me at all. Um, and so I'm just sitting there hoping that these, these elk come down a little bit so they become in range. Um, but it's not happening. Um, and so eventually I hear... Josh saying, Hey, if you can't hear me, come my way. And so I pack up, thankfully, because I was so cold. And I start making it over to Josh, who, by the way, he packed in his sleeping bag where he was in his sleeping bag. <laughs> he brought in a thermos of hot coffee, it had every single down mitten and hat. I mean, he was. He was so warm. Yeah, man. My tag was punched. <laughs> I didn't have a tag. There, was, uh, I had extra weight. Yeah, six pound bow. You can bring your sleeping bag. <laughs> and uh, so, a couple things I want to add. Uh, first, for the listeners, it might be like, "What these guys are using radios? Uh, those are legal in Idaho. They're not legal in every state." Um, so, if you're not aware, make sure you check your state's regulations. And I'm honestly a little conflicted about the use of them, um, but we decided to use them for, you know, in this case, communicate. And, uh, and thankfully Dan could hear me 
came over to me. So yeah, little pro tip. If, if you're going to be sitting there, you don't just bring your sleeping bag with you. Crawling into that thing was so nice. And it was really fun for me in this vantage point because I could see these elk move and see Dan. And I'm like, it's like kind of watching a movie mm-hmm. from a distance. Like, oh, I wonder if, you know, there's other elk he can see that I can't see or man, let's once time went by, I'm like, it gave me a ton of time to be like, what would be a good play from here? And the, the challenge ranch is these elk were just way higher on the mountain than we expected. They were like right up, like right where the tree line was. Yeah. Um, and it's a steep, steep face, rocky, steep, and really challenged. I mean, this is an area that we intentionally came down in the summer because we've seen elk in it a bunch and been like, why are they over there? It looks like steep and dry and terrible. And we, um, hike through it in the summer on a scouting trip to figure out why they're elk in there. And surprisingly, there's a couple little springs in there. And I'm telling you, this looks like it would be the driest face in the country, but it's like South facing and. Um, anyways, it had some water and, and some really good thick bedding cover, but we learned in the summer that hiking through there is essentially impossible to be quiet. There's just so many loose rocks, so much downfall. We're just like, we almost just be like, all right, once the elk get in on that side, we just let them hang in there during the day and try to catch them when they make moves. Yeah. Um, so now we were faced with an odd situation when Dan got to me because that's where the elk were. And in the morning, I just found one other bowl that was sitting over in my canyon on the highest possible like promontory. It was like this precipice. Yeah. If you if you guys have kids and you've watched The Lion King, what they call Pride Rock. Oh yeah. It was like this bull bedded on Pride Rock up in the highest point, the dead center. I mean, almost I I stepped on a stick and I was over 700 yards from this bull and I watched it whip its head around and look at us. Um, Jeez. And it was unbelievably quiet that morning. There wasn't a breath of wind. No. And it was cold as hell. Um, so this is where we had to make the decision, like what to do next, because these elk are super high. It's Dan's freezing, but it's opening morning rifle season. So what, what did we decide to do? So, yeah, I, I met Josh and he, and he was like, oh, keep quiet, you know, you know, move slowly. Cause this, this bull right up there, he's just eyeballing us. I don't think he can see us, but he heard something. And so, and I, you know, I, I see him and he's, in this vantage point that I cannot believe how in the world am I ever going to sneak up on this, on this elk. Um, and so I make a play where, you know, I go way around, I go into this thick trees so he can't see me. And the whole time I have to be super quiet, but it's rocky and, you know, sticks are breaking. And um, as soon as I leave that point where I was with Josh, I lose sight of him. So I don't, I can't see him any longer. And I know I had to probably go 150, 200 feet up. Oh no, like 800 vertical feet. Um, yeah, it was, it was to the elk, it was probably 800 vertical feet, like right along the edge of a big rock slide. Um, maybe not 800, 600 vertical feet. And it was just, yeah, like Dan was saying, super loose and steep rock. I, I knew it was a low probability play from a making noise standpoint, but the wind was still, the thermals were very gentle, but they were just coming downhill still because it was so cold. And these bulls were bugling, um, which is helpful. And it was so cold, like you're not going to, there was no point sitting there in that spot because these elk were, they weren't, they weren't moving. And I was like, well, might as well give, give it a go, Dan. I'll stay right here in my sleeping bag, drinking coffee and, and watch you trash this low probability <laughs> stock. This sounds so, like a very fun hunt for you, Josh. It was great. Oh, you loved it. 
Um, so I start up and, you know, immediately I start, I, I sweat like crazy. So I immediately heated up and I uh, was sweating and, uh, tr- you know, trying to be quiet is even harder than sometimes going fast. Um, and I, I get up to a point where I'm like, okay, I should be able to see this elk. I can't. So I have to keep going up. I look again. I can't see him. I go up a little bit further. I can't see him. And every time I think I'm busting him because I'm inevitably making noise. And I get up to where I'm pretty much at the same elevation as him. And I should be able to see him. And we still have those radios. And I'm trying to get a hold of Josh asking him, is he still there? Is he still there? And I, nothing. I can't hear him. Um, and so I, in my mind, I'm like, I had to have blown him out. I had to have. There's no way he's still there. I know he probably didn't win me, but he had to have heard me or seen me. Well, let's pause for a second because you keep saying him. You're kind of, are you talking about that solo bull? Because at first you were going towards that herd that had two bulls in it. No, I was going for the solo bull. Oh, you were going for the solo yeah. bull first? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So there you go. We're, we're still confused because the solo bull was off to Dan's left and there was a herd off to the right that we knew had at least two bulls in it. But they were much higher. They were a bit higher. But they're the ones that came out first. So that's why I thought you went for them. So from my vantage point, I, I see that Dan's finally getting like at the elevation up there. This is taking 45 minutes yeah. or more to get up there. And I see two bulls pop out and start working off over the top of the ridge to the right. I'm like, oh, bummer. He busted them. And I'm still waiting for a shot moment because I can't see Dan in the trees. And then a third bull goes over there. I didn't know it was in there. And I was like, ah, bummer. He busted that herd that I assumed he was going after. Um, but this, this bull up on pride rock was still just laying there. And I didn't know that. So, um, I, I see, you know, that herd go up and over and I was just like, okay, I'm, I blew them all out. And I look over to where that, that first bull that we're talking about that was on that precipice, um, was, was laying down and I see him just sitting there staring at me at about a hundred yards, just staring. Stood up at this point. Stood up and just sat there and looked at me for a little while and turned around and went right over. And I got to jump in. So Mark, from my vantage point at this point, I'd seen that first group leave. And now I see Dan, I finally catch him through the trees, walking right to left. And I'm here in Idaho. You don't need to wear any hunter's orange during rifle season. So Dan's camel, I can't remember which camel you were wearing that day. I know you've got Sitka, Kuyu, and First Light, but it was really effective. Um, and he had an orange layer underneath, and I could see like a sliver of a hood once in a while. But if I were, if we were to do this again, we would intentionally actually have him wear like an orange hat or something so that we could communicate and like work out hand signals if, if you don't have radios. Um, I was just like desperate to be like, dude, there is a bull that stood up. It's like, it actually took a few steps towards Dan, probably trying to identify the sound or the noise that it saw. And uh, I'm like, just saying in my head, shoot him, Dan, shoot him, shoot him. This is your chance. Cause you know, a bullet that had been bedded stood up. This thing's nervous now. I'm like, dude, shoot this thing. You've got to be close. And all of a sudden I see Dan and I heartbreakingly see that he does not have the rifle off his shoulder and this bull's staring him down from the 100 150 yards yeah as soon as i looked and i saw that he was looking at me two seconds he was gone so i I didn't have a chance to pull up on him and and make a shot so i'm dejected you know four years no no archery bull 
now here I am in my, you know, with, with rifle, boom, blow them all out. Blew four bulls out of the canyon in the first three first, hours. And, you know, Josh and I were going to meet back down to where um, this common place. And, and by the time I got down there, I, I, you know, I was, I really was, I was at a low point. And uh, like Josh said, I, I, I really try to stay positive, but you know, in my mind, I'm like, <clears throat> got it spent so much time up in these mountains and I'm not getting any better at this. I just keep blowing them out. I'm not successful. You know, I'm spending time away from my family. Um, you know, I'm missing my, my kids, uh, mountain bike race this weekend. You know, what am I doing? And I, you know, I get to Josh and I'm kind of throwing stuff around and just second guessing myself and, and, uh, and Josh, you know, credit to him. He's like, hey, it's all right. You know, this happens to everybody. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go follow these elk or we'll go take another direction. We'll, we'll try something new. Don't worry about it. Keep your head up. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, whatever. whatever. I'm done. done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want your positivity but, right now. I want to sulk. Yeah, well, I, was, I was really, really down in the dumps. And Well, Mark, one other small detail that really kind of was salt in the wound for Dan is that last solo bowl that he bumped that I knew it was like 750 yards from me It ran to the top of this basin and I could watch it this whole time. And it was like, I could see it trying to figure out, should I go up and over the top or do something else? And eventually it turns and it starts sneaking its way down between Dan and I, and I'm sitting there. And again, I don't have a tag. And this bull walks from, at one point it was like 900 yards away from me and eventually walks past me at 47 yards. I could have shot it a dozen times with a rifle. You know, it was a, it was a good six point and I, I couldn't, I probably should have not told Dan this, but I was like, <laughs> Hey, uh, just so you know, that bull just walked right under here, which happens to be about 50 yards from where Dan usually sets up his tent when we backpack yeah, in there. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was a little salt in the moon at the low point. Uh, Dan used a phrase that I thought was hilarious later. He's like, what are we saying about, uh, you all say about the crib? Oh, I was like a little kid just throwing my toys out of my crib. I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Taking my ball and going home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all felt that, right? Oh, for sure. And it's way easier to be the, the like calming positive force when you, you have already punched a tag. So as much as Dan's giving me credit, I would probably be doing the exact same thing, if not worse. No, but, but to Josh's credit again, he, he's like, okay, let's go. Let's, um, let's, let's try this other area. We'll go back to where, you know, that, that area where I shot my bull a few days ago. Um, you know, there, there's some, there's some great stocking along the way and there's some great, uh, open fields once we get out there and, um, you know, we'll, it's okay. We'll, we'll keep moving. We've got all day. Um, and then it's kind of where in my mind I start blurring it out. So Josh can probably detail this better than me. Well, and since we're talking about re-engineering success, I will say this is where our experience in the, that area was a huge factor because to get from the canyon we were in to where the canyon we were going, the first few times I was in there, it meant like dropping a ton of elevation, circling around, going up a completely different drainage, like multiple hours. Mm. Um, however, from past years, I was like, all right, this big patch of timber that's immediately next to us just looks thick and terrible. But I had spent the time in previous years to find a few game trails that snuck through there that really weren't that bad. And it cut down the time and effort tremendously. So I was like, okay, we can go a, a pretty 
decent distance across some really rough country, but because I knew these game trails existed, it was not that hard. Um, and I was also like, oh yeah, we can also get water along the way because there's spring, um, which we got there. And this is like a good news, you know, good note to myself. Is this was a dry year and um, it was later in the year. We get to that spring and there was no water in it, um, which was ended up not being a big deal, but it actually kind of helped us. We went higher up on the mountain than we were originally planning to get to that spring. And uh, I was like, well, since we're here, let's contour across at this level, which will bring us in right by my, my the carcass of my bowl from a few days ago. So we go over there and that's where I think Dan was really like, what are we doing? Like there can't be any elk over here. We're literally standing next to the dead elk from a few days ago, which thankfully was right by a spring. So we filled up our water there. Um, and just the way this country lays out, there's not much more of it before you're absolutely like cliffed out in the back end. Yeah. And I was like, damn, let's just keep going. There's still like a little bit more and there's this pocket. I've seen elk in here in the past. Let's just, let's just give it a go. And you know, you can read your buddy's body language. He was still like down in the dumps and we hike up a little bit and we sit down to have a snack right before the kind of the, the land curls where you can see into the back end of this thing. And, uh, we had a snack. I literally looked at Dan and said, uh, why don't you give him a bugle? Cause Dan's a better, better caller than I am. And he was bringing the bugle to his lips. And when unsolicited, a bull bugled a few hundred yards from us. And so Dan wisely, I was like, you know, reply. So he just ripped the bugle right back at it. The bull bugled right at us. And so we went into that mad scramble of like, put, put stuff back in the packs. Like we got to move uphill a little bit and just, side hill around so we get a view into this last little this last little bit of the canyon we started walking um, uphill and started contouring around a little bit and we've got our first glimpse this is most of this canyon is pretty thick kind of like 20 foot tall pine trees 10 to 20 foot tall there's a few little meadows and i look over and i see like five cows hauling ass they're like trotting and they're running straight downhill Kind of perpendicular to us, but definitely getting out of dodge. They couldn't really go away from us because they're cliffs. And I, my first reaction is to be like, "Oh shit!" Somehow we're we're screwed here. They've seen us, but then right then the bull bugles and he's still up canyon, um, and he's you know getting close. And I remember looking at Dan, and this is just where years of hunting experience comes in. I look at him, I'm like, "Dan, get ready. You're about to have a shot," because I could tell this bull's. You know, he's all hot and bothered because I don't know if it's because the cows are leaving or just heard our bugles, but he's still bugling like crazy. Now, for him to get back towards his cows, he has to come through these meadows that are below us um, that we're in rifle range. And so we take a few more steps to get a good view. And, and then we just kind of went into uh, teamwork mode, getting ready for a shot. So, Dan, you should describe that your, your equipment setup because that was pretty key. Yeah. So, um, if anyone knows Josh, he's Mr. Ultralight. And I was packing a fairly large tripod um, and uh, he was carrying that. And we kind of made this game plan that, uh, okay, if, you know, if something happens, Josh, you get the tripod out, I'll get the rifle, set it up on the Harker rail. And uh, we will, you know, I think it was you, no, I, I'll um, range them and uh, set my turret and, then Josh will cow call. And so we kind of have this game plan and we see this window where this bull is coming and we're still in mode of setting up tripod, getting everything ready. 
and we're seeing this window close. Yeah, this rack is coming through the trees. You can't see much of his body, but he's about to step into a, I don't know, maybe a 50 yard by 50 yard meadow, but he's moving steadily downhill. Yeah. And like I said, we're still in setup mode. Um, and, and it was a steep, we were on a side hill from right to left. Dan was above me. And so we dropped down on our sides. Like we're basically almost hip to hip. And Dan's on the uphill side. Um, like I said, I, I started whipping up the tripod and taking my first guess, getting the legs set to the right elevation, which ended up being pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, but we didn't talk about it in the moment, but we just kind of each knew our role because we talked about it before. And yeah, Dan's getting the arc rail, trying to find the bowl in the scope. Um, I can't remember if you ranged or I ranged, but I remember, I think I did, I think I said like 356 or 365. 365. Um, and then, yeah, Dan's like, Josh cow calls. Yeah, as soon as this bull stepped out into the meadow, I cow called. Um, and this bull read the script at that point. He did. He stopped right in the center. Broadside as can be. And I was dialed in. I had it in my scope. And I shot. I shot really quick. So um, so quick, I'll put it this way. I'm I'm on Dan's hip, and he's got a 6.5 PRC with a brake on it. And you know, I've been around a fair amount of people shooting and newer hunters, and they usually take forever to get something in the scope and get ready and get comfortable on the shot. So we're gonna give Dan credit. He had he had done enough shooting and got himself where he really understood the gun. He did it so well that I didn't have time to put a hand over my ears or put earplugs in. And I was right there on his hip and he torches off that first round. And I had no idea if he hit the bowl because I couldn't hear a damn thing. <laughs> and it, you said it was braked. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Thankfully I didn't have a ring. So it was just, it was just very loud. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, so hit it, hit it well. Um, it stunned him and Josh, like put another round in, I had another round in and I was on the trigger ready to shoot him again and josh is like hold on hold on hold on and he he was taking those stuttering steps and he probably i don't know 10 10 yards 10 yards and he just boom, tipped over right in the middle of the meadow the flattest place in the entire i mean the entire valley yeah um and like yeah we could see it he dropped he was just deader than a doornail and we could tell it was a nice bowl yeah um That's great so we went into pure elation. Oh like, man. Like I said, I was below Dan and I remember I was so excited. I started punching Dan in the shoulder, like over and over and over again. Cause it was like, it was right in my eye level. Uh, I remember telling someone like, I should probably stop doing this. This is like, it's not nice. And we were just both like smiling, like, you know, little kids who had found a stash of Halloween candy. Yeah. I and mean, for me, it was, I, I just kind of fell back and laid back on my back and just, huge exhale for it was for some reason I've been putting this weight on my shoulders of you know when are you gonna get this you know coming home again where your wife's like hey did you get it no years of that and to just have that that feeling of success was was really overwhelming for me um and so it, it, it was it's a really really cool moment I'll never forget yeah that's so good man so good and isn't it just like so much better when they fall in sight too? You, just, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's done. It's yeah. such a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's definitely much different than yours, Josh. And only you had to track, but 
it's down and out in the open versus where yours was just in that thick stuff and just even working on the bowl like those two different experiences had to been very different so they could have been different yeah they could they could have been more different it was just like yeah the ams was such a piece of cake it was um as it turns out too so the valley you know this little spot he was in like we just had this incredible vista down the mountain um and it was you know i think it was four something about four o'clock four thirty yeah. in the afternoon when he got it um and this as the sun started going down it was one of those times that you know those days just the way the clouds lay out where the sunset is like an hour longer than normal like the the reds and the pink show up mm-hmm. it was like out of a movie with just watching the sky light up um like the entire sky it was crazy i took some pictures um that were just like it's like man are we really seeing this and it was yeah. just so still and it was it was just awesome. very idyllic place for yeah happened. And, you know, and we hadn't seen anybody for multiple days now. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was such a cool thing. We had just enough time to get it cut up. Just, we literally got it in backpacks, you know, for the first loadout, um, before we had to turn our headlamps on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then we had hike out and I'd say what, 85, 90% of it was the exact same route we took out of the Bible. 152 deadfalls. Yep. <laughs> One more time. It's three or four now. Yeah. yeah, we knew the route really well. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. It sounds like, Dan, you were very comfortable, confident, well-practiced, you know, getting in shooting position, using the tripod, getting in your rifle, as Josh said, like, you know, much quicker than he anticipated. Is that something you've been really intentional about? practice wise I, I would say i practice a lot more with my bow um however you know yes i i i i, I grew up shooting um but uh you know with these these new rifles and you know most shotguns and 22s but you know you get in you get behind one of these you know uh hunting rifles it's a different it's a different game and um having darren cooper kind of show me you know some tactics and and some tricks really really helped me yeah cool you talked about this multi-year journey and what a relief it was to kill this first bull and all that is any of that in your head when the shot opportunities there before you shoot or are you able to kind of turn off that pressure that hey don't mess this up that this is your opportunity etc cetera, etc cetera. like were you just kind of mind off and more in executing or were you in your head at all because i know that for some guys especially when it carries on it's like they get in their head too much right and they don't just execute and do what they should because they realize this is my moment type thing um it, it's interesting it's an interesting question because it's different for me between archery and and rifle it and i don't know if it's proximity to the animal i think it's a big factor in my experience with with a rifle you you seem to have a little bit more time um and 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 you're not worried about them so much seeing you here and you smelling you um and so i feel like there's some distance there and i don't have the same amount of uh if you want to call it anxiety um, when it comes to, to archery, oh, I, I, I get that buck fever pretty bad, you know? Uh, and, and I, I think a lot of that was, 
you know, when I was, when I was practicing my first few years of, of just getting adept at shooting a bow, I was just out of range shooting at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe at 80 yards, standing up, hitting a target. And you go out in the field and it's different. It is completely different. You could be on your, you could be sitting down, you could be on your knees, you could be tweaked differently. It could be at 36 yards, you know, 37 yards. Have you practiced that? If there's so much more going on with that, um, that with archery, yes, I, I think about that a lot more. And plus I, ha- I haven't killed a bull with my, with a bow yet. So yeah, that, that is weighing on me. Um, but I think there's, for me, there's a big difference between archery and, and, uh, and rifle. Yeah. Man, guys, we've covered, covered so much. I could keep you on here and, and talk all day. It's already been a great time, but any other, uh, for each of you, I'll throw this at you. Any other standouts, lessons, aspects of the story you want to make sure we touch before we wrap up? You know, Mark, um, I just listened to you guys put out the gear of the year podcast. So I know you love talking gear and I'll try to make it as quiet as or quick as possible. Cause I, I can talk about gear for a long time, but um, a couple of things that stood out for us this year. Um, Dan, like mentioned with having rent outdoor gear, those guys have tons of really top notch optics. So we got to take some stuff out on our summer scouting trip. It was really sweet. We did a lot of combo stuff knowing there were two of us. So Dan, I'll have to give you the details on what we took, but we took a small Kawa spotter and then a huge Swarrow one for those summer scouting trips. And that was an awesome combo. And then during archery season, um, Dan was using, correct me if I'm wrong, the Swarrow uh, 12 by NL Pures yeah. for binoculars. And then I had those uh, six hour Zulu six image stabilizers in 10X. And it was amazing how often that having that combo was really helpful. Like if it was low light, we would totally lean on Dan using those swirls. They have like way better optical clarity, but there were a few times where it was just really handy. Like, you know, to one hand binos or in tight timber, it was a little bit windy. Those image stabilizers really helped. So we kind of felt like this, we had everything covered between those, um, like optically in both the summer scouting and then hunting with those, uh, bino and spotters, spotter setups. Yeah. It was a good combination of, of gear there. Yeah. Um, and I guess if anybody's an ultralight guy, like I tend to be, I was super impressed by that little Kawa spotter. I currently own the vortex, you know, that little 11 by 33. I think it's the, uh, I don't know what, whatever one it is, but it's a good, good little spotter. It's a little bit older and it's very light. Um, but for hardly any more weight that Kawa is, was really a step up. So it's on my list of hopeful upgrades someday. Um, and then the last one I want to, I want to mention, cause it came up recently. Um, uh, you guys talked about like your super inexpensive gear. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And maybe I mentioned this before, but I take a, this little aluminum trowel. It literally weighs one ounce and you know, it's made for ultralight backpackers to like dig poop holes. And I don't use it for that at all. Um, what we found on these little streams that like you, they're flowing right along the ground you can stuff this thing into the flow of the stream and it creates like a little waterfall effect. And I mean, we use that what dozens of times oh. this year to fill our water. It makes it so much simpler. Um, and I, this came up recently because Kyle camp, you know, mutual friend of ours here in Boise he mentioned that he was on the death hike this year and you guys were trying to fill up water somewhere there in Alaska. And it was a real struggle with it flowing 
right along the ground and tough to get your containers right up against it. And he was like, Oh, I would have killed to have one of those travel. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah that is a great it's, tip. it's always in my pack now. It seems ridiculous, but I will never go backpacking without it. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, congrats, Dan. I, I appreciate, uh, you sharing the story and having you two together is uh, a great dynamic and it's so cool how Dana 48 you just jumped in and have had really great hunting experiences and then great uh, hunting mentors and it's such a cool thing man and congrats on getting that first bull this year oh thank you and I guess to cap off the, the story uh my son um, he had the same rifle tag and, uh, Josh and I took him out, I think a week later, two weeks, two weeks later, and we got his first bull. Wow. Doesn't get better than that. Does it? No, it didn't. It was a really proud dad moment. You know, one of those, one of those moments you'll never, ever forget. And in both cases, it's just like the classic things. I know it's almost a little cliche or overused that like, it's all about perseverance and persistence because like everything can change in a matter of a few minutes and it gets said all the time about backcountry hunting but it's so true and it was like totally reinforced this year oh god yeah yeah well that's a great way to cap it if you heard us mention josh's previous episode and want to check that out it is episode number 329 we also have a link for that episode in the show description While you're at the show description, you can find our contact information, ways to leave us a message, ways to enter one of our new K4 pack systems, and more. So check out the links in the show description if you want to learn any more about all of those opportunities. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you would just share it with a friend or leave a rating and review in whatever podcast app that you're using. And finally, if you haven't yet hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app, do that so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.